Morning, church. We are in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you could look in the pew in front of you and you will see a Bible just like this one. And please feel free to use it. Genesis chapter 3 is on page uh, 3. <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, your word this morning points to our sin. And as we have sung this morning, Father, we are without excuse and we are in a hopeless state. But Father, your word also points to the Savior and to the plan you have had in place from Genesis to Revelation. And we thank you for that plan. We thank you for your love and we thank you for your sovereignty. As Pastor Toby brings the message this morning, Father, may we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit applying that truth to our lives. And Father, may we leave, leave here this morning different than when we came in. We thank you for your goodness and for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you ask someone... <clears throat> How are things going at work? <clears throat> it's not uncommon 
for the response uh, to that question to be a long sigh and a shaking head, drooped shoulders, fine. (laughs) And an explanation of the difficulties is typically forthcoming. A businessman whose uh, flight for a critical meeting in another city was canceled, a lawyer who, uh, whose hearing is delayed, a doctor who's, who has a string of patients who haven't shown up for their appointments, the teacher whose classroom is diverted by any number of interruptions, the truck driver broken down on the side of the highway or delayed in traffic, the stay-at-home mom who thinks she has hours to get things done finds that the washer that's been limping along for quite some time now has uh, finally died. Phone calls from school revealing uh, sick children and forgotten lunches and uh, unplanned errands fill her time. And then there's one difficulty that just about transcends any type of work, uh, and that is the failure of technology, isn't it? That uh, copiers are endlessly jammed, printers failing to print. Uh, If you're in retail, cash registers not connecting to the network. I once went to Kroger right here on... uh, uh, Thompson Road, they had shut down the entire store because, ca- because they couldn't take any money. This is not good. If you're in business, you should be able to take money. Um, but the internet, internet servers refusing to serve the internet uh, to us, laptops and tablets and phones freezing and dying just when the manufacturer wanted them to so that we would buy new ones. Sometimes it seemed at just a strategic point at which we needed them most. And after a long day of all of these types of difficulties, you just want to sit on the back porch and enjoy a glass of iced tea and watch the sunset. And while you're trying to do that, the flower beds in front of you, which you would swear you just picked the weeds 10 minutes ago, are now sprouting new weeds that need to be picked. But that's how work often goes, isn't it? In fact, there's a whole subsection of books in any bookstore dealing with things like uh, efficiency at work and productivity, with titles like Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. I don't buy that title at all. Uh, Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Do you know why there will always be a place for books like these? Why the market for these kinds of books won't run dry? Why they, why they will always find their way to the top of bestseller lists? Well, the answer actually isn't in the realm of economics or sociology. The answer is in theology. Why is it that we need so much help getting work done? Why is it that we find things are difficult to get done? Why is it that we can't seem to be as productive as we would want to be? The answer is in the text that we just read in Genesis 3. You see, having created all things by the word of His power, God creates Adam and Eve, placing them in the Garden of Eden, where they're given the privilege of enjoying God and enjoying one another, enjoying their God-given roles on the earth, multiplying, filling the earth, exercising a dominion that leads to the flourishing of the earth and all of its inhabitants, enjoying eternal life. 
But that original purpose is not what happens. They are deceived by the serpent, as we saw last week. The devil himself comes to them. They doubt God's truthfulness. They doubt God's goodness. And so they reach out and they take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to gain that knowledge apart from God. They wanted to gain what they should only rely on God for. And so they reach out and they take it. And in doing so, their eyes are open and they see that what they have done is evil. They have rebelled against God's explicit command. They have eaten. They have fallen. And with them, we fell. That's how far we've gotten in Genesis 1 to 12. That's where we left off last week. And today we see that the result of that fall is far reaching and it is devastating. Because God responds, but there is something surprising to God's response. God doesn't actually only respond in one way here. What we see in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 24, is that God responds to sin with justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. First, God responds with justice. God is a good God, and just as a good judge in our local criminal court cannot overlook criminal activity but brings justice, so God, who is a good God, who is the ultimate judge, must bring justice when His holy law is broken. This is something to keep in mind because God's justice is not arbitrary. God is not a capricious God who just flies off the handle and just goes any which way and just randomly punishes people. God is just. Look at verse 14 and verse 17. Verse 14 says, he's talking to the serpent, serpent and he says, because you have done this. Verse 17, because you have. God has reasons. They are righteous reasons. They are right reasons for Him to bring justice. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. When God calls something good, you can take it to the bank that it is good. And when God calls something evil, you can take it to the bank that it is evil. And so God responds with justice, but it's a multifaceted justice. It's not just in one place. There's several little pieces of it through here. First, we see it in the defeat of Satan. All right? Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this... Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the, cha the whole chapter begins by saying how the serpent is separated from all the creatures because he's so crafty. And here... He is separated from all the creatures because he is so cursed. And so he will be humiliated. On his belly he will slither and he will eat dust. You remember racing each other? You remember, do you, if you have a brother, do you remember racing your brother as kids? 
and you're lined up and you've got your bike or you've got your, you're lined up ready to go. And they may not say this today, but I remember saying it to my brother many times, wishing it were true, that he would eat my dust, right? That I would beat him so badly that the only thing that he'd be able to taste is the dust coming off my feet or off my back tire because he would be so humiliated in defeat. And actually, that's the way in the Bible that the eating of dust and the licking of dust, that's what that is. In Micah chapter 7, God says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. The humiliation that, they will fa- that the nations will face because of sin will be this kind of eating of the dust. He'll be humiliated, but ultimately he'll be defeated. The, woman's, the woman who is deceived, isn't it wonderful how God just flips everything on its head? The woman who's deceived by the serpent will give birth to offspring that will ultimately defeat the serpent. Crush his head. Notice the exchange of bruisings here in the second half of verse 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the same Hebrew word, though in some of your English translations it'll say crush in the first and then bruise. The reason why translators would do that is not because there's a different Hebrew word there, but because of the location of the strike. Because it's the same action, but when you take the same action from the heel to the head, it has very different results. If I give you a great strike to the, if you give me, let's, I'll, you be the mean one. I don't want to be the one striking anybody. All right, let's say you take a great strike at my heel. You could leave me without the ability to use that leg. You take that same strike and you apply it to the head. You leave me without life. It's the exchange of the same bruisings, but it's a different location, and so the result will be different. The great serpent here will do damage to the offspring, but the offspring will end the serpent. And this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. In His life, remember, He has authority over all demons. He's casting them out. They're begging Please don't destroy us yet. Will you cast us into this herd of pigs? They know who they're dealing with. Is now the time that you're going to destroy us? They know what's coming. And then in his death, he humiliates the powers of darkness. Colossians 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then the ultimate defeat in Revelation 20, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Bruise after bruise after bruise after bruise after bruise, and he will be no more a threat. Now, there is more there, and we will get to that. But notice that there's no mention of anything else right there. As the Bible develops, more is seen in that crushing of Satan. 
However, right here, it is that the enemy has infringed upon territory that belonged to the glory of God, and so God will reveal His glory by defeating Satan forever. We will enjoy that, and we'll get to it, but right here it's just about you will go no further. You will come to your end, and it will be a crushing blow. Secondly, the justice of God is revealed in the difficulties of life. There are temporal judgments that happen because sin is in the world. Childbirth, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. When God says, surely multiply your pain, it's actually two very closely related Hebrew words for pain right next to each other. To use bad grammar, God is essentially saying, I will painify your pain. It'll be painful pain. It will be laborious pain. It will be hard labor pain. And all the ladies who have given birth said, all right, thank you very much. I remember we were in the hospital with one of our children being born, and and the woman across the hall was making all sorts of sounds that I had never heard before in my entire life. And the nurse came in, and I asked what was we asked what was going on, and uh, the nurse told us that she arrived too late to get an epidural. And so when I walked out, her entire family, who would normally have been in the room with her were all out in the hallway because they could not take the sound of the painified pain and the laborious labor going on in the room because she's, woo, you know, I mean, this is what she's doing. She's making all sorts of sounds. But that exists because sin has cursed our existence in the world. In marriage, second half of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, at first glance, this seems really odd, and some come to the conclusion that this is, this, this is where that whole idea of submission started, isn't it? Right here in Genesis 3.16? No, it's not. We'll see a little bit of that now, but we've seen it before. Adam was the one created first. Adam names Eve. When God comes to question about the fall, He comes to the one with all of the responsibility of leadership. He comes first to Adam. The rest of the Bible is going to lay the fall of man on Adam's shoulders. So that's not where this comes from. However, we need to understand what it is. And one of the principles for studying the Bible is to let those things which are clearer interpret those things which are less clear to us. So we may see that and think that, is, that seems odd. So in this case, we don't have to go far. We only need to go to chapter 4, verse 7. Cain is very angry because his offering has not been accepted as Abel's was. God comes to Cain to speak to him. Why are you angry, verse 6, and why has your face fallen? And then in verse 7, look at the last sentence in verse 7. Its desire, speaking of sin, which is crouching at his door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Okay? 
Now, when you see that, you should know that that is the exact same linguistic structure as exists in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is not an innocent desire on Eve's part. Well, I just really love my husband. That's not what that is. Your desire shall be against him. And in response, he will try to rule over you. He will be domineering. This is a she wants her way, he wants his way. This is the story of almost every single counseling experience that I've had with a couple. Just as sin's desire was against Cain, Cain's called on to rule over it. Adam is not told he must rule over it. Eve has just said, this is what will happen. Your desire will be against him. He will rule over you. This is the picture of Genesis 3.16. We read this in Guatemala. When I was in Guatemala, uh, uh, training pastors, biblical counseling, I was teaching on marriage, this fundamental uh, idea. And when we read, I didn't read in English, and then they read in Spanish. I just had my translator read the Spanish text, and then I would dive into teaching. So the Spanish translator reads the text, and at some point from verse 14 to verse 24, there was giggling among the men. Now, my Spanish is not great, but I knew right where they had laughed. It was right at the end of verse 16. And I had to stand, I stood there, and I corrected these pastors, many of them older than I, for laughing at what is part of the curse of sin and its effect on marriage. That this is not a normal and good and wink-wink, nudge-nudge, laugh-it-up part of life. And by God's grace, a man came to me and he said, you know, in our culture, we just take this as this is just what it is. Men are supposed to rule and domineer in their home because of this text, because it's been wrongly taught. And he said, but when you said this was part of God's words of curse... The lights went on in my mind. And now I will never teach that the same way again. Isn't that good? Isn't God good to do that through His Word? But marriage will be difficult. The beauty of husband and wife, two becoming one, will turn into a nasty fight for control. Why do we fight and we quarrel? Well, James 4 says, because our passions are at war within us. But James, why do our passions war within us? And Moses raises his hand. Because her desire will be for him. And he will respond by ruling over her. Sin's presence is the reason why we sin. This is how it will be until Jesus returns. In childbirth, in marriage, in work. Look at verse uh, 17. 
This is God begins to speak to Adam and to Adam, and He gives the lion's share of the uh, words here to Adam, because, not to Eve. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, now lest we go on and be confused, this doesn't mean, Adam, what are you doing having conversation with Eve? That's not what that means. It doesn't mean, oh, you should never heed the wise counsel of your bride. That's not what that means. What happened here is a role reversal. The verb listened doesn't just mean that he was a thoughtful husband who sat down to see what his wife thought about something. That's not what that means. What that means is this word listened is a word of submission and obedience. So in Psalm 81 verse 11, but my God speaking, but my people did not listen, there's this word, to my voice, Israel would not submit to me. This is a parallelism in Psalms so that submit, the obedience there, is parallel to listening. The same thing is true at the end of Exodus 27 when the covenant is being uh, 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 renewed there. We get to the end and the people, Moses opens the book of the covenant and the people say, we will do it. We will be obedient. That will be obedient is this same word for listened. It isn't that they had counsel together. It's that the reversal of the proper roles happened. Adam was meant to lead his wife into godly obedience and submission, and in failing to do so, they wound up in deceit and sin. That's what happened. So, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Now, parents understand what that means, right? When you go to your children and you ask, now, didn't I tell you, don't go to that person's house? It's an underlining of the severity of the rebellion, didn't I tell you not to eat of it? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the earth. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Thorns and thistles will plague Adam's agricultural life. So many things that I mentioned at the beginning, those things which just pop up and make work difficult. Things that we have to deal with all the time. And then death, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return, which is part of the reason God expels him from the garden that he might not have access to the tree of life and live forever. Adam receives the sentence of death as the head of his family, as the head of all humanity, not because he alone will die, but because he is the representative. He is the one who bore the greatest responsibility. This death in verse 19 ends up not just to be a physical death. It turns out to be uh, it's pictured by physical death, but it's the death of the human soul. And the New Testament expands on this so that Romans 6 says the wages of sin is what? And Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. All of these difficulties faced in life, in childbirth, in marriage, in work, in death itself, all enter because God is just. And then the last bit is the separation from God. It's a twofold separation. Listen, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. I mean, God doesn't even finish his sentence here. He just gets going. The Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, which is a harsher word. It's a word that's actually used in another place for divorce, the dissolution there of the relationship. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, it's a twofold separation here. First, it is a physical separation. They're driven out of the garden. They don't get to enjoy its blessings. They're unable to eat the tree of life. After all, remember what Adam was put there to do in chapter 2, verse 15? He was there to work it and to keep it. To keep it, to guard it, to keep it from harm, to keep it safe. Do you know what the cherubim are there to do? Guard it. You know why? Adam didn't. It's the same Hebrew word. The guarding here in chapter 3 is the same word as the keeping in chapter 2. And it's a relational separation. There is no more unhindered access to God. God responds with justice. But the really good news is that this isn't the only way that God responds. Aren't you glad for that? You should be glad for that before we ever get to it. Because God is merciful even as He deals out justice. Just go back and look. We'll go through those same three things. In the defeat of Satan, not only is God's enemy and our enemy crushed, the one who... Not only is God's enemy crushed, our enemy is crushed. The one who steals and kills and destroys us. The one who accuses us. The one who lies to us. The one who is opposed. Yes, we fight spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6. But we fight it from a winning position. Because this is the guaranteed outcome. He is crushed. In the difficulties of life. In the difficulties of life, there is still flourishing. It's like a field covered with, you know, blackened lava, and all of a sudden a beautiful flower blooms up out of it. Everything has not been destroyed. What, did, what, what was deserved? Everything being destroyed and everything coming to an end, and that's it. Game over. No reset. But think about through the difficulties of life. You see, childbirth would not just become a reminder of the sin that invaded human life. It would be a reminder that through the offspring of the woman, hope 
was coming to crush the head of the serpent. When you go to St. Francis, if you hear over the little speaker, Jesus loves me, then you know a baby has been born. And every, from now on, whenever you hear that, just, just remember that in the midst of the pain of childbirth, God is still mercifully giving life. He mercifully gives life. What a wonderful thing it is. In the midst uh, of the difficulties of marriage, marriage can be riddled with difficulty. And yet God still gives joy in it. God is still glorified in it. Human flourishing still happens through it. Societies are still built on it. Kyle and Kathleen, you're not getting married because it's a necessary evil. It's because God has blessed us with marriage. It is meant to be enjoyed for His glory. And in work, it is a painful process. But did you notice there's these three little words that show up three times in verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You shall eat of it. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. Yes, you are not going to have the access to every tree in the garden that you once had, but you shall eat of it. By the sweat of your face, verse 19, you shall eat. How merciful that in the midst of the toil and the struggles of work, God will still provide what is needed. It will be a pained gain, but He will give sustenance. And even in the separation, this separation that takes place, that God drives them out of the garden places a cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. (laughs) The mercy, actually, you just have to keep reading the Bible to find the mercy, okay? Because this isn't the last time that we see the cherubim. When God gives instructions to Moses for the tabernacle, the curtain that is to surround the Holy of Holies, embroidered into that curtain is cherubim. Why? Because symbolically they are to guard the way into the very presence of God. On the ark itself, cherubim with wings extended over the mercy seat guard the very presence of God. But it doesn't remain closed because God mercifully gives them a system of sacrifice by which they can make atonement for sin. Now, animal sacrifice, the kind that would have provided the garments here for Adam and Eve to walk out with, is a merciful provision, but it's not permanent atonement. Yet it allows mankind to still have some, fellow, some kind of fellowship with God. But that sacrificial system that we could read about isn't actually an end in itself. It's a pointer to a more merciful provision, a perfect sacrifice Jesus Christ on our behalf. You see, you remember what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Matthew 27, And behold, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Do you know why? The cherubim are no longer needed to guard the way back into the presence of God because God has made a way in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took the flaming sword of the cherubim of the wrath of God on the cross so that we might be able to walk back into the presence of God. There's no more guard, it's wide open. You see, in Jesus Christ on the cross, the God, the God of justice and mercy are present. The mercy of God and the justice of God kiss on the cross. Because the justice of God is poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The fury, the terrible wrath of God is, lay, is poured out in floods, drowning the dear Son of God in the wrath of God so that like a flood His mercy reigns unending love and amazing grace on us all at the cross all at the cross In Genesis 3, 14 to 24, God responds to sin and He responds to it in justice and in mercy and He still does today. And there will be a final justice and a final mercy that we enjoy forever and ever. It will be a permanent position that we have because of God's mercy toward us. Do you notice God isn't active? It's not like we tripped and fell. Did you notice that? Look at verse 15. I will put enmity... Verse 16, I will surely multiply. There's no sense in which God is sitting, sitting back and saying, oh, how terrible this has happened to them. I better do something about it. God's plan all along was Jesus Christ on the cross. And so at this moment, God, according to Romans 8, subjects the creation to futility. Now, certainly there are temporal mercies that we just talked about, the joys of marriage and, and children and satisfaction in various kinds of work, but these are temporal and these are partial at best. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes resonates in our heart, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And God has subjected the world to such vanity, to such futility, not only because of the sin that entered it, but listen, so that we won't feel at home in a world of futility. Our sin unsettled this place. And God, in these kind ways, makes sure that we don't feel settled in this place. Feeling the ruin of the world, feeling the pain, is a kindness of God meant to keep us from looking for hope in this shadow land, meant to keep us longing for mercy, eternal mercy that is only found in Christ, mercy that leads to eternal life in the new heavens and in the new earth, so that we read in Revelation 22:3, no longer will there be anything accursed. 
And that chapter ends with this, the, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. To the one who has provided that place, come. To the one who through his blood has made us a kingdom of priests, come. To the one who forgives sin, come. To the one whose righteousness will be credited to you by faith, come. It's the last word of the Bible, and it's our last word here. Call on the mercy of God. He is merciful. He loves to show mercy. He loves to grant forgiveness. Come to Him by faith. If you do, Jesus says, He will in no way cast you out. Come. Let's bow our heads and reflect on the teaching of the Bible together, and then I will pray. If you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus, what He did for us, why He came, any of us would love to speak with you. You can talk to any member of this church. You can come talk to me. We would love to do that. But let's take a moment and reflect, and then I will pray. Most righteous and holy Father, we bow before you because you are the God of all creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When we see the stars that you have put in the heavens, what are we that you are mindful of us, that you care for us? Not only are we small, we are sinful. We deserve nothing but your justice, and even now, as we sit here breathing breaths that you give us, you are being merciful to us. We pray, God, that by your Spirit you will help us to tremble before the reality of your justice against sin. As we think about unbelieving family and friends, that they don't just think differently, but they're, as your word says, under the wrath of God. We are in awe of your mercy toward us. that though we do deserve nothing but justice, you have forgiven our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you call us even to embody the very mercy you've given to us, telling us to be merciful as you are merciful. That even, even as we give our benevolence offering, we want to be merciful in doing so. As we interact with 
with those around us in our workplace, in our families. Teach us to be merciful. Remind us of the mercy that you have shown us. We are thankful, Lord, that you have spoken in your word and that that you are a good God who responds to sin in both justice and mercy. We pray we would make light of neither one. Help us, Lord, to live as those who've been rescued from your just punishment to live forever in your mercy. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our substitute, our Lord. Amen.